Uh, last weekend, uh, Bill led us in concluding the teaching series we're walking through and looking at the armor of God. So it seemed fitting that we now this week move into a series that starts to ask the question, okay, what then? What next? And really to start us off with this, I, I want to start with a picture. And it's simply this. I hold before you now a lottery ticket. You can't see the words likely, but on the top it says, set for life. Now for many people, this represents hope. I bought it at a gas station. And really, I tried to remain really inconspicuous. So if any of you are there watching me buy a lottery ticket, I want you to know, know and understand the reason. And really, when I got up there to buy it, I thought it'd be easy. I discovered you have so many choices, you can't believe it, how many choices there are. So I asked, I asked the clerk, okay, which one of these will win you a million dollars? He didn't know, so he called loudly to the manager in the back, which one of these is for a million dollars? I felt like I needed to say, I'm actually not trying to win. This is just for a sermon. <laughs> sure it is. I'm sure he would have said it. <laughs> Hear that all the time. And let me just encourage you with this. Don't get into this stuff. I mean, maybe it tells us something that the computer-generated winning number on this is 666, huh? Well, it should be. It's not actually, but it should be something like that. Andrew Cantor, interesting observation. He said, lotteries are nothing more than a state-sponsored tax on the mathematically impaired. <laughs> Pretty much that's what this is. Now, growing up, I was given wise counsel from my parents to say, they said to me, Clyde, don't get caught up in gambling. It can be very dam damaging. Because one of the concerns with gambling was that it carried this unhealthy allure of wanting to make big cash without working for it. And don't anyone say that's like being a pastor. Don't say it. But there's this enticement that if I just get the right lottery number, if I just get dealt the right hand, if I just pull the lever on the right slot machine, I could really hit the jackpot. You know, just to be clear on the statistics on this, just so we're aware, a, a person is 121 times more likely to get hit and killed by lightning than to win millions while gambling. So approach this with that kind of mindset. Don't start gambling until you've been hit like 120 times with lightning. Maybe then the odds would be a bit better for you. But even with those kind of ridiculous odds, we know this, thousands upon thousands of people are still willing to gamble the little that they have in order for the chance of hitting it big. Thinking, then I'd be set. Then life would be good. Now you might respond, but Clyde, I'm not into the lottery. I'm not into poker, I'm not into gambling. Well, my point today is really not about dice or cards or slot machines. Not that kind of gambling. But rather, it's that many of us, even those who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, many of us are still gambling still believing that the way to happiness, to meaning, to what we're searching for in this life is through stuff, through riches, through pleasure, through things. 
You know, you might not put it this way, but essentially, you are going all in on the riches and pleasure pathway to happiness. So how does that play out? You know, other than Jesus Christ, the person who is often described as being the wisest guy who ever lived is Solomon. And actually, he started gambling on the wrong things in life. He started putting his hope in the wrong places during a certain period of his life. And we can really learn from him to help us get this decision right. He talks about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want to turn there with me, it's just kind of the right of Psalms, if you go there. And, and we read in Ecclesiastes that Solomon, during this period of his life, he just dove headfirst into the waters of self-gratification. And this is how it's described. This is Ecclesiastes chapter two, and as we hear this, remember, this is the word of God. And it says this in verse one. Solomon wrote, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. He essentially said, I'm shooting for the lottery. And, and so let's read a few verses where he describes this path he went on. Verse three, it says this. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. Verse five, I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Verse eight, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. And, and just so we have the right picture here, by saying he got singers, he's not saying I downloaded some great tunes on iTunes. He's saying I bought the bands, I bought Coldplay, I bought U2, because U2 truly even then was the best band ever. That's what Solomon was saying. But that, that's the picture of what he was doing. And he had a harem as well. Every wild sexual adventure he could think of, he said he pursued. And just so we're clear about what he was doing, verse 10 says this, I kept my heart from no pleasure. Pretty unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, in our day, that's like the ultimate goal for many people. I mean, to actually have the opportunity and the resources to be able to deny yourself nothing that your eyes desire, to go after it all and to get it all, to have it all, to be able to acquire and satiate all of your material and artistic, physical desires, all of it. That's a lot of people's dream. So he went all in on complete self-gratification thinking that would bring purpose and meaning to the life he was living. Thinking it would bring that thing that each one of us is longing for. So how'd it work out for him? Well, look at the next verse, verse 11. You might want to underline this one. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. It was a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I had everything. I had it all. Can you imagine it? Put it in your mind. I had it all, he says. 
and it was vanity. It was like running after the wind. You know, Solomon's wisdom in this is something we can receive. In, in fact, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote these words describing his insight. Proverbs eleven twenty eight in the message translation. Read this with me, would you? A life devoted to things is a dead life, a stump. And he had things. He had it all. And after having everything, he said, I got to let you know, it leads to a dead life. It leads to a stump. Okay, so hold on to that symbol, all right? Hold on to that. And, and hold on to Solomon's experience. And let's move over here to this table. Because we have a different symbol here. There's three things here. We have here a basin, uh, for one, a, a, a pitcher with water, and, and then a towel. Now, you might recognize the symbolism in this, but what these are about was these were items that were used at a typical meal, dinner, or banquet in the Middle East in ancient times. And it went this way. If a host would have a banquet or a dinner, they would have one of their servants or slaves at the door to welcome the guests. And what would happen, because in that day, people walked around typically in sandals on just dirt, dirt roads. So they came to a dinner, and the slave would be there to kneel at their feet and then pour out the water to wash over their feet and then take the towel to dry off and clean off their feet. That's what would happen at a dinner. Now, this was done in part to provide comfort for the guest. Because I think we can all recognize, you remember those, that feeling, maybe you've been on a long hike, you come home and wash your feet, even that feels good, right? So in part it provided comfort, but it wasn't just for that. Additionally, at dinners or meals in that day, they didn't sit at tables with chairs. They reclined for a dinner. So picture that scene. That's what dinners were like. That's what took place. When you sat down for that kind of dinner, you had someone else's feet right in your face. You got the picture? So that's why everybody loved the tradition of foot washing in a very practical way. Now it's interesting, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 13, it tells us the story of Jesus having a dinner and he has a, essentially a party, this gathering with his 12 closest followers, his 12 closest friends, his disciples. And everything's been arranged. But they walk into the room, and apparently there's no foot washer guy. Now, it might have been some kind of administrative oversight. We don't know from the text. But we're, we're led to believe that the absence of this foot washing servant or attendant created a really interesting tension among the closest followers of Jesus. So you picture the scene. It's like they're standing there saying, okay, who's going to get down and do this despicable job? of cleaning feet. Now the text doesn't tell us explicitly this, but it doesn't take much to imagine. Peter, for example, imagine Peter standing there going, I'm Peter the rock. The rock don't do feet. Somebody else. Uh, some other disciples saying, hey, I was one of the first ones Jesus called. That's not my job. Another one saying, hey, I'm not your slave. I'm not doing this for you. And so we just picture them all standing around with their arms crossed going, this isn't going to happen. That's beneath me. I'm, I'm not the slave here. So kind of likely this awkward moment, you can kind of easily imagine some level of tension in the room. What we do know is no one did it. Here's the thing. 
there's a detail in the story recorded in John 13 that you really don't want to miss. It's just two words. It says this, John 13, 2. During supper, just pay attention to that. Here's the scene. They're already eating the meal. That, that's what's taking place. It's the middle of the meal, and the foot, foot washing still hadn't taken place. So the general picture is this of the disciples. They would rather eat with someone else's dirty feet in their face for three hours than to humble themselves and wash another person's feet. And as we're going to see later, that kind of attitude wasn't beyond the disciples, sadly. Now, the scripture records that Jesus was watching this kind of mini drama unfold. And then he does something that's been discussed for 2,000 years. So the meal is being served. They're eating. And the disciples don't know it yet, but this, this is the Last Supper. This is the Last Supper they would have with Jesus before he goes to the cross. This was the meal where he initiated communion. And this is the description in John 13. John says this, verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Let me paraphrase that. Jesus, as a result of knowing that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from and was returning to God. Let me even put it even simpler than that being crystal clear about who he was and what his calling was, Jesus, look at verse four, Jesus rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around them. So Jesus, takes off his outer cloak, just like a slave would have done, and he pours out this water. And there he is, the Son of God, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, on his knees, crawling around, serving the disciples. Got the scene? As he moves from one to another. Can you imagine how quiet that room got? And how embarrassing it was to have their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord, have Jesus dealing with their grimy feet. I don't think there was much conversation going on at that point. I don't think anybody was saying, pass me the hummus. I think dead still. And here was Jesus demonstrating a willingness to do for them that they were just patently too proud to do for each other. And then we're told when Jesus finishes with the last disciple, he stands up holding what would have been a grimy towel and this basin filled with muddy water. And he says these words to his disciples in verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Can I make sure we're not just hearing that as words to the, those disciples? Jesus, even before us today by his spirit, says to us, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, South you, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I mean, Jesus just unapologetically, with no ambiguity whatsoever, calls every one of his followers 
to these acts of kindness and servanthood, like foot washing. Jesus says, I want this to be one of the distinctive characteristics about people who bear my name. I I want them to be identified from all the rest of the people in society as as those who are willing to do what other kind of normal, maybe pride-filled people are, are often unwilling to do. I mean, Jesus says, I'm calling for my followers to live beyond their own ambitions and hungers, to look beyond their own petty concerns, social status, titles and positions, my wants, my desires, my little protective church. Jesus says, I'm calling every one of my followers to go all in on serving a towel. And it's interesting, he doesn't make this call in some kind of dreamy, esoteric, spiritualized sense. But he calls and teaches and demonstrates this in a very, just painstakingly practical way. I mean, he says, I'm calling you to do simple acts of service and kindness, like foot washing, serving others just out of the regular flow of your day, practically helping someone in need, assisting someone having a difficulty, living life as a servant of others. And I want you to notice, he adds this in verse 17. If you know these things, here are some key words. Blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is saying, if you do this kind of stuff, walk in this kind of service, you'll be blessed. You know, in my Bible study at home, every time I come across a promise of God in Scripture, I underline it in yellow. It's just a way of paying attention to it or noting it when I go back to it. Verse 17 in my study Bible is in yellow. Because here is Jesus making this blanket across the board, no exception promise. That towel bears, those who serve others in practical ways, those who live beyond themselves, will become the recipients of God's sovereign blessing. It's that something of God will be released in and around your life. Something good will come your way. God's blessing will fall on those who take up the towel and live the way that Jesus demonstrated for us to live. And friends, especially in serving those who are in greatest need, who are most impoverished, who are most marginalized in society, who are most cast off in our own world. And let's remember that the Bible calls some of those foreigners and aliens. Interesting in our day. All right, so we take all that, and here's the question of the day. Do you really believe this? I mean, do you? Do you you believe it enough that you would kind of reorder the value system of your life around this promise of Jesus Christ that if you take up the towel, you truly will be blessed? I mean, one of the most important decisions you can make in your life is are are you going to consistently keep looking for ways, shortcuts to the kind of fast cash and the promise of him hitting the big? I mean, whether it's more money, more fame, more applause, more power, whatever drives you. I mean, just honestly, what prompts you in this? I mean, do you think, really, if you're honest, do you think that more and more of the Canadian or North American dream if you get just more of that, that then you're going to get blessed. Then you're going to feel satisfaction. Then you're going to be at peace. Do you think truly all that stuff, that peace, that satisfaction, is more likely to come through all of this 
Or are you betting the farm that truly it's going to come through towel bearing? What do you really think on this? Again, friends, I think this is fundamentally one of the most important questions you'll ever ask yourself and, and resolve in your spirit because truly it shapes the way you live life. So the question really is, what are you banking your hope on? I mean, do you believe Jesus' words here? And I think pretty much all of us recognize that the reason being a servant is unpopular is because, in part, it just goes so contrary to our inborn kind of selfish, sinful nature. In our minds, we are just kind of wired initially to have this tendency to be first, not last, right? I mean, really, we want to be served, not serve. One writer put it this way, in each human heart is a built-in mechanism that craves self-promotion and advancement. Yeah, that's pretty much us. You know, the great evangelist Dwight Moody was once asked, how can you tell if you truly have a servant attitude? And he responded, you can tell if you truly have a servant attitude by the way you react when you're treated like one. You know, there's another account of this dinner other than John 13. It's in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 22, this also is a description of that Last Supper. And Jesus, in Luke 22, by this point, he'd led the disciples in Passover and in reforming and in initiating the Lord's Supper communion together. And Jesus here had just told his disciples, just told his disciples that one of them would betray him. Now, that initiated some questions, we're told, among the disciples about which one of them would betray him. But really, their thoughts were so much elsewhere, they didn't stay in that topic long. Look at what their focus was in verse 24. A dispute also arose among the disciples as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Jesus, boy, we're really blown away you're going to be betrayed. But truly, the key question is which one of us is best? Jesus said to them, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who what? Serves. I am among you, God in the flesh said, as one who serves. And then look at verse 29. I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Just want us to catch the weight of what Jesus is saying here. Let me summarize his words. Jesus is saying, serving others, it is, literally, it is at the heart of Christ's kingdom. Right at the heart of it. That's why Jesus would say in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, speaking of himself, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, the expression of Christ's love was serving. That was it, in his life, on the cross. That reminds us, friends, you cannot separate loving and serving in Scripture. You can't do it. You cannot separate loving and serving. And, and just so we have the picture here, that, that word serve there in, in Mark 10 is, is a Greek word, original Greek word, diakoneo. You want to say that with me? 
diakoneo. Now you might recognize that's a word from which we get the word we now use, deacon or minister. That's what we translate it as. Originally, before the church got a hold of that Greek word, it meant something different then. It meant the same thing as a Greek word doulos. Doulos and diakonos were both synonyms that meant bond slave. And Jesus saying, I'm a bond slave. That's his attitude. That's how we're to walk. That's what he's calling us to. And understand what a bond slave was. A bond slave was at his master's disposal. He was his master's purchased property. Just bought to serve his master's need. He was on the beck and call of his master every moment. And the slave's sole business was to do what his master desired. That's why Paul, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that our Christian service as we're following Christ, therefore, what it means first and foremost is living as a bond slave to our Savior. That's part of what's involved. When you come in faith to Christ, you get the incredible blessing of being now, through faith in Jesus, a child of God, one who is holy, righteous, and pure. You have a, a future eternity aligned for you in Christ. But it also means... You are a bond slave. We are ones who should be saying, Jesus, I'm here to serve your purposes. You guide me. Can I bring this home to us here a bit? We, rightly, this is speaking of serving out among us in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, and the world around us. Absolutely. L let's bring it home here to us to apply it kind of specifically, right? And, and what would the implications of these words be on us right here? And I think we could say this. For one, it means that in our gatherings here, like when we're gathered right like this, we can sing passionately. We can pray fervently. We can study God's word intensely. But friends, if we do not have a heart for and actively serve others, all of this is meaningless. It is offensive to God. And you might be thinking, well, Clyde, that, that sounds a bit strong. You know what? Let's be Bereans on this one. Let's look at Scripture and see, does Scripture back up that kind of understanding? In, in fact, let's go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. I want you to hear this perhaps anew, so let's read it from the message translation. This is what it said. Jesus said, if you enter your place of worship, like at Southview, and are about to make an offering, and you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, or you against a friend, abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend, and make things right. Then, and only then, come back and work things out with God. I almost wonder that if we were truly obedient to Christ, if it would not be the case that a regular pattern in our worship gatherings was every so often someone gets up and leaves, realizing, wow, I, I've got to take care of something. I mean, do you hear that? Do you hear the bluntness, just the abruptness, the clarity with which we're guided here? And again, this is Jesus talking to us. And if you read that and think, well, Clyde, that doesn't talk anywhere about serving. Remember this. In Scripture, you cannot separate loving and serving. They're, they're just equated in how we walk in life. But just to assist us in this, let's look at another text. Let, look, look at what John said about this in his first epistle. This is in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4 verse 20. John says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, well, he really needs to work on that. No. John says he is a what? 
a liar. For anyone, listen, anyone who does not love does not serve his brother whom he has seen. Cannot love, cannot serve God whom he's not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God, whoever serves God, must also love, must also serve his brother. So friends, I think just in that we could keep going with text, but I think what do we hear from scripture? I think we hear this. We cannot worship God without loving and serving one another. I think that's what scripture says. I think it says it begins here in this body with us. In fact, can you read that with me? Let's read it together. We cannot worship God without loving and serving one another. You know, just to remind us of that, that's why perhaps you've noticed our church symbol on the viewpoint or different places around this facility. That's why in our church symbol in the lower right-hand corner, we have that L there to remind us that love, love is the first fruit of authentic followers of Jesus. We could also put another S there and say serving is one of the first fruits of followers of Jesus. So we take all that and then we summarize and say, okay, So Jesus calls every one of his followers to serve others, to live with others in mind. And Jesus promises that those who serve in this way will be blessed through their serving others. So the question before each of us is, where am I gonna place my hope? Really, where am I gonna do it? Will will I really kinda, am I gonna gamble on self-gratification and quick fixes? as my path to meaning and satisfaction in life? Or really, am I gonna trust that Jesus is right? And am I gonna follow his path uh, and his calling to serve and in serving be blessed by him? Now in the coming weeks of this series, we're gonna look at some of the specifics of how we live out this calling together to serve, okay? That's what we're gonna be doing. But today in closing, I just wanna give you three simple challenges. Three simple challenges for today. Just as kind of first steps for us in moving forward in this. All right, here's the first challenge. Can I encourage you, reorder your schedule so you can make it to every single service in these teaching series. Over three weeks, we're gonna walk through this. Really, I, I think there's that much at stake in this. And maybe you say, well, we got friends and family in town. I invite you to bring them here. I will give them a coupon for free coffee. <laughs> I'm that delighted. We, actually, your church will. Your church will give them that coupon. And, and let me say this. If you're like, well, I'd like to, but we're out of town. Can I encourage you to somehow find a time in the following week then to watch or listen to the teaching on this so that together as a community of faith, we are journeying this together, all right? First challenge. Okay, second challenge. Let's try this. Before you leave this gathering today, I invite you to do a simple act of kindness and service for someone. And here's why I want you to ask you to do it. Because I know this, really the minute you do it, I, I bet you'll have a taste of the blessing of God. Really, so just even in simple ways, just let someone go first, out of the parking lot or out of here. I know, that's a stretch. I mean, just greet someone that you haven't met before, perhaps. Hold the door open for someone. And I fully aware, this might make it challenging for us all to get out of here today. If you say, no, yeah, let me get the door for you. No, I insist, let me get it for you. Just, man, we are so servant-minded, we're stuck here all week. 
But again, just want us to do a small act of kindness for someone so you can get just a taste of that blessing of God and just get in the pattern. That's the second challenge. Just, we're gonna do that right here before we leave this place. And maybe you know this, but behavioral scientists tell us that typically it takes about 30 days for a repeated action to kind of become an ingrained habit in our life. And, and the, the, we're not just doing mindless acts in this, but we're doing this because we're prompted as children of God who have this incredible armor for God in spiritual warfare to move forward in obedience by the power of the Spirit, amen? That, that's why we do it. That's the second challenge, and then the third one. Okay, before you go to bed tonight, I encourage you to express Christ's love in the context of your home or neighborhood. Just do another, just kind of simple, maybe unusual, just, but just towel-like act somewhere around the house or neighborhood. Because again, if you get the experience of just this flavor of blessing you receive as you serve others, it helps prompt us along the way. Just two small expressions during this day. Just to help us start falling in the pattern of, man, I like this, this is good. You know, Brett reminded us, we're in the season of ordinary time, where just we recognize that in the ordinary things of life, in our work, in our home, play, in your travels, just in humble ways, subtle ways, being open to serve others. And again, understand the reason for doing these little acts of service. We want to train ourselves to live like Jesus, right? It's doing that. And, and this, the saints across history have recognized this. When we train ourselves to be like Jesus in just the small little things in life, when larger challenges come, we're more inclined to be like Jesus in those moments. All right. So in the coming weeks, we're going to do some in-servant training. All right? So hope you can be back. There's the challenge, and the rest is up to you. Wonderfully so, by the power of the Spirit. Amen? So let me pray over this. And Father, we come, for one, with incredible thanksgiving that you, the God of creation, who put the stars, the galaxies in their place, would then come and kneel at our feet and, and wash our grimy feet. And Father, we pray that by your grace, again, not just by our self-will, but by your spirit, you would empower us to live that way. Even this week, would you give us eyes to see in situations large and small where we can just serve others, express you in that way, and in this way, bring you glory. Oh Lord, hear our prayer. And again, all God's people say, amen.